We need to talk about the economy part of the circular economy. Welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. I'm your host, Catherine Wheatman, and I started this podcast to help people discover why circular, regenerative and fair solutions are better for people, planet and prosperity. Some people think going circular means swapping a few materials or making things a bit more recyclable. But that's nowhere near enough to create a healthy, resilient and zero-carbon world where we can all thrive. Many organisations are missing the game-changing potential of going circular. The disruptors in this space are using circular strategies to reimagine how to create value for all their stakeholders. They're doing better with less. We'll hear from those inspiring people who are challenging business as usual and rethinking how we design, make and use everything. You'll find the show notes and links at circulareconomypodcast.com where you can subscribe to podcast updates, my Circular Insights newsletter and check out my award-winning A Circular Economy Handbook. Hey there, welcome back. It's episode 119, and thanks as always for listening. This episode is different. We're going to be digging into some big themes and concepts for a critical part of the circular economy that often gets ignored the economy itself. Today I'm talking to Ken Webster, and I'm going to be uncharacteristically gushing. Ken Webster is right up there as one of my circular economy heroes and he's widely acknowledged as one of the foremost thinkers in the field. From 2010 to 2018, Ken was Head of Innovation for the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, shaping current concepts of a circular economy. Ken also co-wrote the book that first opened my eyes to the circular economy back in 2011, Sense and Sustainability, co-written with Craig Johnson. One of Ken's best-known books, The Circular Economy, A Wealth of Flows, relates the connections between systems thinking, economic and business opportunity, and the transition to a circular economy. I'm also very keen to read one of Ken's most recent books, co-written with Alex Duff. Ken and Alex use a storytelling approach based on The Wonderful Wizard of Oz to offer a new and compelling narrative about the future direction of our economy calling for macrobic economic system redesign. The book's called The Wonderful Circles of Oz, A Circular Economy Story. You'll find the links in the show notes. Ken's written several more thought-provoking works on the circular economy, including ABC plus D, Creating a Regenerative Circular Economy for All, also co-written with Craig Johnson, and we mention some of these as we go along. This was a wide-ranging conversation about system scale issues and concepts. I did my best to keep up with Ken's thinking as we explored some of the big ideas he's been working on, including a universal basic dividend, not to be confused with UBI or universal basic income. We discuss why a universal basic dividend would be a good thing, how it would be funded and where the money would flow to. We move on to the commons, what that really means and how it could be better accommodated in our modern economies, 
in a meaningful and sustainable way. Ken talks about the rentier economy and rentiers. If you're not familiar with that term, it's someone who earns income from capital without working. For example, by owning property or land that's rented out to tenants, by owning shares or bonds that pay dividends and interest, and so on. We discuss why the economy isn't working for the vast majority of people around the world, and what's getting in the way of an economy for all. And we talk about some of the signals for change, with people starting to see the potential of a future with community, connection and caring. Caring for each other and for our Mother Earth. We talk about the potential of a future that's not all about work, buy, consume, die. I wanted to make the most of this opportunity to dig into some of Ken's ideas. So it's a long conversation and I've split it into two parts. The second part will be out next week as a bonus episode. And just to ramp up the stakes and the scariness for me, we recorded this at a studio near where Ken lives. However, the equipment was set up for music, not podcasting, so the sound quality isn't as good as I'd like. And a few other things went wrong as well. We begin from the point of view that just after World War II, we had a very productive economy, powered by fossil fuels, and that nowadays we seem to be ending up in a very different sort of economy. So please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Ken Webster. Because you see, sometimes you get into that theory of change and you say, well, let's assume you all understand system thinking. Mm, okay. Mm. Let's un- you understand the monetary system. Uh, no. No. <laughs> you understand <laughs> what um, effectiveness is compared to efficiency. Mm, not really. You know. uh, so, you see, to, for my mind, it's in a way very simple in a sense that how does the world work? Well, it's all complex, feedback-rich systems. Mm-hmm. And they have a self-similarity at different scales. They're, they're fractal, to use the the words. So you can identify what the structure of an economy should look like if, if it's also a complex, feedback-rich system. So what sort of complex systems do we take our insights from? Well, actually, the, one of the most useful ones is to take the living systems, mm-hmm. aspects of complex adaptive systems, And in fact, some of the original authors in circular economy, like uh, Bill McDonough or Michael Browngart or Hunter Lovins and and Janine Benyus, for instance, in biomimicry, they would say, let's take insights from living systems because it tells us something about how things grow, Mm. how they flourish, how things circulate Mm. to be very effective systems. Yeah, and that's again uh, topical to me because i've seen recently on linkedin yet another of the conversations about you know but growth is good nature grows and then somebody stepped in to say well actually um nature things in nature tend to grow to a healthy adulthood (laughs) and then no further yes indeed so maybe we should because that is the kind of not the elephant in the room because people are talking about it but it's one of the big disconnects when people think about the economy and the conditions for business and the future that we all supposedly want yes people are hung up on this thing that um growth is imperative growth is the way that we get trickle down and everybody gets better off yeah and i'm guessing you would have something to to say to that well 
if the premise is correct that uh, both uh, living systems, uh, atmospheric, oceanic systems, they're, they're varieties of a, of, of a complex adaptive system. They're, because they're contained within a context which prevents them from filling the universe, for instance, with ocean currents. They're, they're confined to a planet and they're feedback rich. And so why not take some of the characteristics of that when we're talking about an economy? Because otherwise you have to be anti-science. Mm -hmm. Anti-science would be to say, well, we can run down all of the natural and social capital, you know, we can degrade it, run it through a system, create mountains of, of waste, and we convert some of it, lots of it, into financial capital who we only give to a few people. That's all right, because as long as those people get richer, everybody else gets a bit better off, uh, as long as they don't pay the real costs for anything. So in a way, it's like a cheat system. Mm -hmm. In order not to discuss proper circulation at all scales, they say they sell the myth of throughput, change things into financial capital, which magically, through somebody like Elon Musk, or you name your person, will make some technology that will fix everything. Mm. Uh, somebody once quoted uh, the well, indicate, pointed towards the film Thelma and Louise, and said, "That's a bit like driving over the cliff, and then imagining that you might fix out a parachute somehow between going over the cliff and landing. It's not going to happen. It's in a way pathetic thinking. Whereas if we take insights from living system, we say, this is a flourishing ecosystem." It doesn't grow forever. It goes through a number of stages. There's the reordering and fast growth things. Then it goes to a more mature stage and then it declines, you know, and is reworked and put into the system. So that's how things work. You know, let's not pretend. And the, the thing is as well, it works at a number of different layers. We know this in ecology. Half the organisms that exist are within the soil. Mm. You know, it's not that big oak tree you see over there. It's all of these things working together. And it is competitive, but it's also cooperative. Mm. We know that mycelium swaps, uh, it gets sugars from the trees and it swaps minerals it gets from the soils. Mm. That's great. It also communicates, if you like, chemical messages between different trees or uh, substrata. It also helps break down the soil. So you've got, if you like, uh, what they used to call the five kingdoms of nature, and they're all important. You can't say, well, I'll have four. I'll have three, and let's just hope it works. You can do anything for a short time if you want to sort of burn down the house while you're trying to do it. So that's sort of a nonsense. But uh, we've become rather addicted to it because it just promises if only things get bigger, we can have a bit more. It avoids the question of redistribution. Mm. And over the last couple of decades, and I guess particularly since 2008, but that, that wasn't you know, such a big change, was it, that... The, the sort of um, general workers have been getting um, less well off. Their yes. wages have gone down and costs have, costs have been going up, even, even though slowly. And yet the rich are getting richer and controlling more of the production, more of the land, more of everything. And if, if you look at some countries like the US controlling more of the decision-making yeah. through their political donations, 
So it kind of feels as if lots of people have lost hope that there can be a better world. And I, for one, think that using circular economy and regenerative approaches mm -hmm. can help us mm -hmm. move towards that, given our you know, <laughs> recognition of, of there are limited resources and so on. And I think one of one of your key points is that it's not just a matter of thinking about how we make my phone last longer or no. be more repairable. We have to think about the economy. So could you unpack that a bit for yeah. us? Post-2008, which threatened to take down the entire finance system, uh, governments decided they needed to save the banks, not anybody else or the finance system. And they did that in two ways. They made sure money was really cheap, but they suppressed interest rates by making sure uh, there were lots of uh, available uh, money uh, channels through to finance. And they also uh, encouraged, by doing that, the increase in asset prices. So what money was available, there was lots of cheap money around, there was mm -hmm. quantitative easing put in quite deliberately as well. Where did that go? Well, it went to boost asset values, things like real estate, finance, insurance, stocks and shares. Now, that was a great indicator of what the most important part of the economy was as far as the central governments. It was that famous phrase, they're too big to fail, so we should help them out. And then we will get back to growth and everything else once this um, the finance system has been stabilised. But what happened is a bit like, I don't know, catnip <laughs> for cats. Once they stick their head in it, they, they want to keep eating it, even if you're trying to drag them out of it, you know? So uh, for a very long time, it became just too comfortable. Finance dominated. It still dominates. Finance mm. size of the economy, as Marjorie Kelly said, is five times the size of the productive economy if you, if you look at its monetary value. And yet it does very little. Mm. It does very little, except circulate money at among those people in at that level. It doesn't. We know that. It doesn't trickle down. But it also puts up the rents and costs and squeezes the real income of the workers. Plus, with a technology twist in there as well, on the globalization opportunities of moving production abroad, the returns to labor, as you've indicated, have stagnated or fallen. Plus, there's a huge increase in the amount of precarious employment. So mm -hmm. there's a precariarity to it now, which is this zero contract, zero hours contracts and so on. Even in uh, academia, there's sort of a preponderance of temporary contracts flowing around. So it's almost permeated the whole economy, which was, it was adds up to asking, well, what's the economy for exactly? In the post-war period, immediately uh, after the end of the war, People like Keynes and others had said that part of the reason we got into a war was that we'd let finance go crazy after World War One. We had right. the Roaring Twenties, if you like. More skyscrapers were built in that period towards the, the Great Depression than in any period up until the 2010s, you know, in, in, in a one, mm. one chunk of time. So we're not having that again, is what the general feeling was. We're not letting finance loose. We've got to manage demand to make sure it's about the productive economy and we're going to protect the workers, the, the men and women who came back from the war, by making some things really accessible to them. We will make housing accessible to them. We'll get health care to them. These reforms happened, not coincidentally, 
but deliberately around the time of the end of the war. It was to say, we've got to do better or else we will risk another war. Mm. Yeah, that's part of the move towards integrating France and Germany in an economic bloc uh, that, that spawned off eventually the EU. Uh, we've got to make sure that people are happy and prosperous too because they are more tolerant mm. if they're better off. You don't mind so much what peop other people are doing, even if they find them slightly irritating, if you're doing okay and they're doing okay. What's to get annoyed about, really? So it helps improve relationships socially to be better off in a sense of being able to access the things you need, particularly housing, health, schooling, mm. and uh, unemployment, crucially. Now, at that time, most economies were national, and so it was easy to control the level of demand in the economy. And uh, even as Keynes and supporters did this, uh, an economist called Kolecki said, this is going to work for about 30 years because what you're going to get is issues around inflation mm -hmm. pushed by, if there's so much employment, people get fussier about what job they're doing, they push for higher wages, uh, they're more, as I say, more industrial disputes. And so it looks less and less like a good investment environment after a while because um, it's like the rising, uh, the cost push inflation at the time was going to occur. And of course the oil crisis happened towards the mid, mid 70s too. Mm. And so you got the very thing that Kalecki predicted would happen, a sort of dissatisfaction with the way things were. Now, all of economics is really about telling different stories. Now that was the end of, if you like, software based version World War II just finished, mm. the 30 glorious years it's described, I think, in France. Uh, so what you had next was a flip, and this flip was towards uh, what we now call roughly um, neoliberalism, or um, um, so it's neither neo or liberal, actually. You know, yeah, Ronald yeah. Reagan, Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. They didn't have any new ideas, they just picked up ideas that were hanging around. Uh, this is very, very clear. They didn't invent anything. It was all there sitting, waiting. You know, the, mm. the think tanks have been busy yeah. crafting a different way of looking at it, a coherent story, if you like. And they go, well, your problem is government. Your problem is over there. We will change all that. We'll let things be liberated in the market. Let, the market, let the market decide. Mm. And we'll flog off, we'll sell all of these sorts of assets that we have that we shouldn't really be running. You know, like house, social housing or uh, telecoms or all of the yeah. utilities, whatever. So that's fairly familiar. But the thing is, uh, version two also had a built-in explosion point. Mm -hmm. And that was because you weren't disciplining finance. Finance would do a runaway and you'd get debt, uh, private debt spiraling up mm. until you had a, a point where it became unstable. And that ended up in the period around 2005 to seven, And then in 2008, the finance system basically fell over because nobody was beginning to trust anybody else about the liabilities that they had. Yeah, because things could be could be parceled up and, and oh, yeah, you're sliced and diced over yes. and over again. Yes, that's right. Um, and I guess it comes back to, I've heard you talk before about, you know, the, the problems of the rentier economy. Yeah. So I guess it's it's kind of part of that, but we're seeing perhaps similar things happening now with commodity futures and you know buying buying up 
um, whether it's lithium or copper, or there was yeah. one recently, um, orange juice, because there's been problems <laughs> in Florida with the with the orange juice harvest. So, um, yeah, you know, speculators. Speculators. Yeah. And it's interesting and, because the roots of the, the more recent descriptions around the circular economy took root in the period just after the financial crash. Now, that was no... It was a coincidence, but it was... Uh, even I'd been fooled by it. I thought, wow, commodity prices are really on the way up because they're a shortage supply, maybe. Mm. But no, it was lots of those people who had been speculating around other things had to find somewhere else to go, and they put it into commodities. Ah, uh, OK. So, there, was, there was a chart I used to, used to use um, that kind of, you know told a story of risk around resources mm. and it was from McKinsey yeah. and they'd headed it you know a century of price decline yes, reversed I've, I've in just a one. decade yes, that's right. and um, you know it suited my story well well it did but now it you know and then so after the crash it wasn't entirely changed. that when China was busy uh, pouring concrete as, mm. as the phrase goes they were busy doing that at the same time but it was very much when the Chinese economy stopped um, putting on more debt and getting more things done uh, in this period it'd be around 2014 commodity prices tailed away again it was not a permanent shortage it was just what are the prospects for mm. making money on uh, lifting prices uh, in the commodities and at the same time the quantitative easing and support for the traditional assets had begun to pick up and so they switched their interest back into things they preferred to be in, like real estate mm -hmm. or stocks and shares. So commodities became a less, a less of interest. But it had at least prompted discussions about will resources be available? And at that time, that was useful. Now, I'm just you know, trying mm. to be honest here. And many of us were caught up on it's going to be scarce. And so mm. many companies were interested in that. In terms of cost, it was scarce, but it wasn't physically. The Financial Times did a little investigation into copper at the time, and they said, where is all this copper that China's using? It's not going into infrastructure. Uh, we can't see, you know, we can't calculate it. it is. So they went and had a nose around some warehouses. It found, they found out that a large amount of copper was in co copper coils being used as collateral for real estate loans. Right. You know, because it is a valuable thing, it's portable, and if they can't get the credit one way, oh, I've got this copper, it's real, you know, believe me. So there was so a... It was an alternative it's to an gold, alternative basically. to gold, <laughs> yeah. if you like, which is it's, it's fair enough, but let's not just pretend, oh, the world's running out of resources in that sort of way. We know that it's getting harder to extract, mm -hmm. but technology is, in a way, kept up with that reasonably well. Uh, so there's just not an obvious one-to-one -one relationship between resource prices and, uh, you know, the need for a circular economy. Uh, is part of that discussion? Yes. But this is why I've tended to talk more recently quite a lot about the monetary aspects of this, this idea of the rentier economy. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, this idea that people who own assets, which might begin to include products, components and materials in asset classes mm -hmm. they might enjoy the circular economy because it says don't sell stuff do it as a product of service do it as you know it, it, you keep hold of it you keep control of it 
And in uh, does this tie into Walter Stahl's? I think I think it was one of his concepts of uh, renting molecules. So well, particularly for say um, <laughs> the African countries who've oh, got mineral deposits yeah. that they could rent out those minerals. Yeah, to this is materials as a service. Yeah, yeah, which has been discussed a little bit. Yeah. So, so do, is that all part of it? And how how does that fit in with the idea that this rentier economy? Is a bad thing. Well, the ready economy is it concentrates power in the financial sector. We know that. Mm -hmm. That's indisputable. And because it can do that, it can raise prices on access to those assets. Mm -hmm. And it's also come alongside the because some of these um, rentier or excess profits come from controlling businesses. You know, this oligopolistic, yeah. the concentration of businesses. Only three firms control 92% of all mayonnaise mm. available in America. You know, the mm. mad statistics like that, which you wouldn't think is true because you just see different brands. So you've got a concentrate in concentration in industries. You've got financial dominance so that financial engineering matters a lot. Now, wouldn't it be nice if these folks could help with a green transition by controlling products, components and materials via the circular economy, so they can be new asset classes. Now, is that, that's interesting because if, if there's limited numbers of copper producers, for instance, maybe they can do it so they only rent access, the use you fruct, you know, the benefit of the use of these molecules to different people and it's going to be come back through materials passports to them eventually because they never actually let it go. Now that could be super good for a country who doesn't get say is exploited by a big company because it might say it's our copper mm. we will allow you to use it but we're going to keep a track on this and then the money and then the copper comes back and then can be repurposed. Mm -hmm. The trouble is who's probably going to control it? Yeah, well, very few large companies. Yeah, um, and yeah, that would be a, a really bad thing. But I guess coming back to that principle of, you know, renting or leasing the molecules and retaining ownership of them, it helps encourage organisations to think about the durability and effectiveness of those minerals rather oh, yeah. than it being an economy that's all built on producing as much waste as possible yeah, in the absolutely. fastest time so that then you have to replace it with new stuff. Yeah, we don't, we now great. don't want that thing to be wasted because that's, you know, it's, we've, it's we've had valuable. to write off our asset. Yeah, yeah. So, that, so that's really good. Let me just interrupt you. That's really good. The question pops out, and this is some work uh, that a couple of people at UCL are doing, which is who owns the stuff? Mm. And that brings you back to right back to Rontier things. Yeah. Oh, it's long lasting. We know where it is. We know who owns it, which is going to come back. Hey, we've helped really fix some of the problems that um, we're facing. We haven't got so much waste and blah, blah, mm. blah. But who owns it? And there's yeah. that little meme and, flow. And even around. if it's the government, that it, government could be run by a, a bad actor or, you know, a, a Donald Trump, Trump or whatever. Yeah. So we're no better off. So, so how do we move away from this, um, you know, a few vested interests controlling the. Mm the assets that are rented to something that's more commons-based. Well, yeah, more commons-based, which which allows... Commons, by the way, refers to a resource a community of users and some rules around using it. Mm -hmm. It's not so much... It's not a public ownership thing. It's, it's somewhere in between public mm -hmm. and private. It's 
the practice of commoning, you know, working with a resource through a community of users and with some some rules about how it's done. But it makes uh, commoning is great because it makes access to some things transparent. It, it, mm-hmm. it's, the interest is in maintaining that resource, uh, expanding over it through relationships yeah. over the long term. So that's good. But there is a problem, <laughs> and there's always problems. One thought I've had around the concentration of ownership in a few hands, which is very hard to disentangle, you know, it's very hard to take down, mm. is to say, well, okay, you folks, you control it, but my goodness, you're going to pay user fees. You know, this is mm-hmm. the world's resource. You're going to pay user fees for that, and we're going to circulate that to the base. So that would be similar to a form of tax yes, on and the, and the reason, either on the asset or yeah, the production it would be that s- then flows back. It flows back. Yeah. But in a way, it's not a tax. I think this is a subtlety in the discussion I've picked up and is that it's a redist- or pre-distribution even of the value of these resources. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to go into government to fund, name your most hated government use, you know, which is what the some mm. some political people will say. It goes into a commons fund or a citizens fund to say, this is our resource. We want to put it there. And if it's from a diminishing resource, we're going to invest those funds to get, you know, mm-hmm. to make sure the value of the capital stays up and the returns are good. And we're going to give it to everybody individually, everybody without... Regularly, no conditions, it's not means tested. It's mm-hmm. yours, for heaven's sake, it's a dividend. Mm. That's why I talk about a dividend. That's such subtly different than we're going to tax the wealthy and we're going to do some more projects that help, you know, mm. health, education, which can be quite good. But many people have pointed out it hasn't the political energy in it that it might have had 40 years ago before mm. the. Uh, it would have a lot of power in the 1970s. 80s but less so now people think well what's that going to mean can't we just keep the schools running and hospitals quite well anyway do we have to tax the wealthy to do that well yes you do but why not do it in a way that brings the support direct to the direct to the people that's the argument around the politics on it so effectively it's a recognition these are common resources it might include the electromagnetic spectrum. It might include the the, the the trunk and hardware and software that helps run the internet system. You know, this is something that you didn't create, Mr. Company, Mrs. Company. Mm. It's something you use. It's a social infrastructure yeah, it's which something was that you inherited. Use, you know, you deploy your social media tool to... Yeah, you to do that. Or the data, individual's yeah. data. Mm. This could, you know... Fees charged on the use of that, which is a commons, Mm -hmm. can be put into this fund is the idea. And this is then circulated to everybody in a country. And other people say, well, the North owes the South Mm -hmm. compensation for for extracting resources and doing things. Maybe it should become eventually a global uh, distribution system whereby Mm -hmm. those who use most effectively... Yeah. compensate those who have uh, not that, been able to access it. I guess that could perhaps needs to start at the outset, doesn't it? Because otherwise you've got the 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 loss conversation if you start to take dividends away from people. But even if even if there wasn't a formula for redistributing it, mm. to recognise that a good proportion of this needs to go to other countries. Yeah, so yeah. will X percent can go to the local commons. Yeah. 
users right. and the rest of it is saved for yeah it'd be better if that was woven in yeah you know in, in yeah. some work i've been doing on behalf of the club of rome this is a key uh, discussion point um, mm. lobby groups like equal right say well you've got to do this at global scale from the start as you're mm -hmm. saying others say yeah let's get it rolling first let's get mm. it meaningfully politically yeah. engaged so does it need global political engagement or could it be done by I believe it could be done countries. Uh, by countries because you have to get political buy-in. That's from the people. People have to say, this is fair. Mm -hmm. This is fair for me. Yeah. Because it's a different way of, you know, okay, the price of fuels is going to go up and the price of this is going to go up, but I'm getting compensated and more yeah. from this. Yeah. I'm good with that. Because yeah. at the moment, that story is not out there gathering much... Uh, traction at the moment mm. it's a bit like oh i don't know what we should do i suppose austerity light might be better than austerity really hard core mm. you know it's like choosing between a very bad party and not quite so bad party but there's no real um, new idea sitting there yeah it's just kind of in a bit more for you yeah. a bit less for you mm. you know people's not very i think inspired by that so to i i, I feel that let's get the idea rolling Let's get it being a, a logical thing to do. It really helps the circular economy because it adjusts prices so that we can make a more rational use of it. Mm -hmm. And encouraging the base, this is the counterpoint to the rentier economy, encouraging production and cons consumption and exchange at local and regional levels and circulating wealth there from productive activity is a great way to counter the, um, if you like, the dominance of a rentier economy thing because people will say, actually, I don't need uh, this here mm. so much. And I've got some income coming in from the dividend. I'm going to set things up. And there are infrastructure could include community kitchens, it could uh, temporary storage space, open source platforms, ideas like community land trusts, which really does say we can put more power in your hands to manage your opportunities or to enable your opportunities to meet some of your own needs and wants in a way that is convivial ways that you would not feel that you're being ripped off uh, or, or, or it being sucked up into some financially engineered um, universe mm. so we've we've got two kind of new things the basic dividend for citizens mm -hmm. coming from the um, the minerals or the you know whatever else the commons is is being used for and then we've got the need to put funds for communities to use would that all come from the same the same kind well, of well the, the the more <coughs> the, the big thing i haven't mentioned is land mm -hmm. uh, henry george is famous for having this notion that if you just tax the uh, increase in land value not the buildings on it you would probably get enough resources to take away things like income tax or some of these other, mm -hmm. you know, it's a single tax approach it was called. We haven't mentioned land and perhaps we should because that's where the most benefit would come from in terms of uh, raising money for, to pay a dividend mm -hmm. because it's on the unearned yeah. rise in the value of the land, not, not what you did to the house. And of course, there's nothing that the middle classes in different parts of the developed world would hate more than messing with the value of their Mm. properties because mm. so much of wealth if uh, except if you're very very rich comes from your little slice of 
uh, the, the land you live on. Mm. So that is not not that favourable. But it feeds into the question you asked me, which is, um, would this replace other sorts of um, benefits, perhaps? Or it's mm. one of the questions. Would it? What would it do uh, in terms of displacing other things? Circular economy would really want income tax and consumption taxes to go down so that you yeah, you don't penalise the worker. Resources and yeah, stuff. Yeah, so you tax yeah. resources, waste and yeah. non-renewables, which yeah. is land. That would be really good and that would fit in. It's part of the, the parcel. And in fact, I, I, from what I've been reading, it seems that if you don't have a land element in it, you're in very big trouble in terms of getting enough of a, a dividend mm. to make a great deal of difference. You'll compensate for the rising prices of fossil fuels and minerals, but you won't get people ahead of the curve because so much of um, wealth accumulation is merely through the accumulation in real estate mm. values. So it does need... So the land would have to be tackled and... and in, in some form, probably. Yeah. That's why I say probably because you're trying to attract people to an idea. Yeah. And then you say, well, actually, uh, you're 78 years old and you will owe us so much a year on the value of your house. And then that, that person might be living alone, uh, mm. uh, clearly a pensioner. So there have to be things like, well, this will roll into when you die. Yeah. We'll take it then. Don't worry about it. Which kind of happens now, doesn't it? it you know, if, if, if people need to go into a care home and their yeah. partner is still living at home in the yeah. house... The council can take a charge on the that's on the right. House. That. So you can find yeah. your way round yeah. it, uh, and there can be a split taxes. In other words, you charge for the services that the building needs, you know, like we do with the council tax, and another part of the tax can be on the increasing value of the property. But it makes sure properties are used, and it becomes less used intensely. There's less land banking. There's less unused housing because there's a tax to pay on it every year uh, because it, in terms of its rising value so it tends to get buildings properties into use and that's a good thing mm, I'm assuming absolutely, absolutely a good yeah. thing um, and it would help pay for some of the initiatives we need to make sure people have got more economic security mm. whether that's fed through the, the government or, the, or you stay more purist and say this is going to be part of the dividend you get Mm. Um, I'm sort of comfortable with the that direction yet I'm still concerned that a rentier economy was still so dominant and what could one do about about them if you like mm. that, that because they are so influential on governments yeah now there's lots of talk about uh, something I'll just briefly mention it's really great fun it's asset manager capitalism this is the idea that some funds own so much together of the stock exchange yeah. that they can say to firms, yeah, get involved in the green transition. Mm. And what they've said already to governments like the US is, we'll push these firms to do the right thing, but you just make sure we don't lose any money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you're getting talked about, yeah. We need this subsidizing. Yeah. So we yeah. preserve our wealth, you get the green yeah. transition, but you don't get it a fair one. Mm. You don't get a, a just a transition. Mm. You get, hey, we preserved our wealth yeah. and we look like heroes. There's a bit of that happening with land at the moment. They know very well people are going to get paid for absorbing carbon into their soils. 
so they're they're busy buying up. So some of my yeah, friends yeah. said they're buying yeah. up quantities of land of say in Scotland, yeah. saying we know this will be coming along. We can just sit on our land. We'll get the carbon credits. We'll you know biodiversity will thrive. They'll think we're great, and we just get the money for nothing. Mm. And in the meantime, the UK gets even less self-sufficient on yeah. food. For all the rest of it, because that's yeah. not their problem. Yeah. The problem is how to preserve their wealth. Exactly. And if a new flow of money is there because we want to absorb carbon, which we jolly well have to do, they're happy to take what's being given. Mm. You see, so that Rontier thing lives very deep, if you like, in terms of, uh, obviously, you know, in terms of influence and power. Yeah. and juggling with the system or adjusting the system to suit the preservation of wealth not to pursue to pursue a just transition yeah or preservation of the human race well yes yes so how how do we move towards that then given the strength of vested interests who would be blocking that i mean are, are any countries kind of thinking about how to do this or you know apart from revolution which i'm up for (laughs) how how do we let's have a revolution well you know that's an almost impossible to you know answer question so i'm not sure you're expecting me to to answer it but i will what keeps me going keeps me getting up in the morning is the uh, is the power of ideas Mm. right some of the things no I, i i just reflect what is being discussed these ideas around a circular economy a dividend, um, an idea of providing infrastructure to promote local production because mm. they promote ownership in different ways, you know, mm. um, cooperatives, land trusts, and so on. This might be something which people will coalesce around. Yeah, and if they do, they can say, "We want, we want this. Actually, we want, we want this change to happen." We want economic security, for heaven's sake, we need that. Mm. And we don't want to keep burning the planet. So mm. why don't we bundle these things together somewhat? Is that going to just do it? But no, it's a bit like the idea of democracy originally. It was, you know, you can't do that. Um, it's the idea of people making having a vote in, in, mm. in government or something. Well, we'll just let the landowners make a vote to start with. Their wives don't get to vote because they're the property of the husband, but don't worry about that, you know. Democracy spread into different mm. arenas and then ossified a bit. It just ended up being parties. You know, you vote for one party or another, which is mm. somewhat the same. But the idea is very strong. Nobody would now say, we don't want democracy. Well, I hope they don't. My goodness, we're in trouble if they do. Equally, they wouldn't say we want to go back to women being the property of their husbands. No, it's just not thinkable. Mm. Now, if we can get some of these ideas, like it's our earth, it's earth for all. We have a share Mm. of this. We want compensating for what you've enclosed. That's justice. It is. It's an ethical argument in the end. This is for us. We're we're due that, and. That offers me some sense that with the technology that makes producing things a lot cheaper now, you can do local energy things, you can do local internet webs, you Mm. can collaborate on open source software, you can do tool libraries X, Y, and Z. There are so many more ways to collaborate. And if the economy falters and dips a lot, people will rush into being more self self-reliance or their only safety is their community mm. in the end they'll be more interested in what the community does or how it does that with them involved 
that this could be a refreshing point. In other words, if the big system crumbles enough, mm. it will probably, when when there's no vested interest that's worth being vested, uh, the, the counter to that is if AI goes crazy and just uh, enables a, an elite to effectively control um, the population all over the place. Because with AI, you could probably do it with very mm. uh, much less investment than very big armies of yeah. uh, forces. Well, I guess that's um, Mr. Musk's ambition with X, isn't it? He wants X to become a version of the Chinese system where <laughs> everything is controlled through... Yeah through one app yeah and therefore you know as it as i understand it in in china if you've um you know complained about the government you might not be able to then use public transport and that kind of thing yeah, it's their every, social everything. credit system yes yeah. so the thing is though they and china's suffering from this at the moment they've had a lot of trouble in their economy real mm. estate's really off yeah uh, employment unemployment's going up youth unemployment people get annoyed because if it doesn't pay off in terms yeah. of them having what they perceive to be a better lifestyle, like the the, the um, birth rate in China has fallen off a cliff. They, they mm. kept on the single child yeah. for a long time, expanded it, but women have decided, no way am I just going to get into that. I can't afford it. Mm. And I want to do something better, a more interesting sort of lifestyle anyway, or you know, life prospects. So that really undermines the system. They have to think, well, look, we've got a severely declining population thing here. Mm. Uh, we've got Somebody's going to have to change something because this doesn't work. It's a bit like the Black Death and stuff, if you like, back in way back. That really improved the position of peasants yeah. so that they could get a better <laughs> yeah. deal from the landlords. Exactly. If you want to use me, I'm here, but you're not paying me nothing anymore. Mm. Or I'd like a little bit of land, you know, to mm. grow some stuff. Yeah, sure, go ahead. So you ended up with some quite important shifts because of fundamental structural uh, changes. Mm -hmm. And I think we're sort of at that moment now. It's whether it goes in the more right-wing direction, which is there's lots of evidence of that, the more mm -hmm. we, we're scared of everybody else and therefore we will vote for idiots <laughs> sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Or whether it's like, oh, well, this is a moment to say there is a renaissance of... Uh, what we can do with each other using the technologies we've got, using the knowledge we've got around things like circular economy, regenerative agriculture, and so on. Knowledge is very accessible now. Mm. So whether we can remake our world, and that comforts me in a little way, you know, that changes on the go. The green transition, you know, I've looked at the graphs on this, it's uncertain, but it's headed in the right direction. Mm. As usual, I think, I forget who the author was who said it, humanity usually gets there in a half-assed way. <laughs> you know, yeah. it manages to scrape. It's a race between education and disaster, I think, uh, H.G. Wells And are you says. seeing any, any kind of examples that give you glimmers of hope? I mean, there's a, there's a community in Germany that for a number of years has, they've got so much um, uh, renewable power around their village, their community, that they can sell enough to the grid to fund all sorts of projects as well as have you know low-cost energy themselves Are there, have you seen any examples of whether it's community supported agriculture or um community you know use of fab labs that kind of thing are, are you seeing any any signs of things mushrooming out from well there's a there's a really it's pretty an extensive network 
Michelle Bowens and the peer-to-peer folks, mm-hmm. uh, David Bollier, uh, his sort of uh, blogs and connections. There's lots of it bubbling under all over the place. Uh, I'm thinking about tool libraries particularly, mm. or I'm thinking yeah. about open source software like Inspiral and as a way of organizing people. I'm thinking of Christian Fielder's book uh, about a, a good economy. I forget the, the title mm. now exactly, but it's, a lot of that's about decision making and how we rebuild that. Now, how do you build consensus decision making? Not this simple, it's binary. Mm. It's, do you want this All or right. do you want that? Deliberate democracy. Deliberate participatory yeah. democracy, things yeah. like that, are growing, I think, rapidly. But it's not possible to point out to one thing that's a shining example. I think there are lots of super interesting things. I like the agrivoltaics thing, this idea of mixing energy farming mm-hmm. in low- and middle-income countries uh, and, um, and land so that the energy from the agrivoltaics will these are sort of solar panels on stilts somewhat so the farming can still go on underneath it moderates the temperature and humidity of the land mm. it's easier to grow things and there's an income now as long as that land can be provided really cheaply and there's an arrangement suitable one i think a lot of the future is going to be about how we manage a systemic relationship in the resources who owns the panels who owns the land mm. what do the farmers get how are these decisions made if we can make these relationships and connections more a focus of discussion rather than saying, how do I exploit this person? Yeah. Yes, how do I make economic rents out of this? This idea that when we're all better off, we're all better off. And so we can use a systemic thinking to allow the participants, this is commoning in a way. Mm. Um, these are what, what I think, well, um, Michel Bowen says these, these sort of things always rise when there's economic disturbance, mm. you know, when the big hierarchy is somewhat crumbled or collapsed or weakened, yeah. people get on with it at at another level, mm. and they build up new structures. Yeah, when people start to lose trust in their leaders, yeah. it, it will do it ourselves. moving towards a better future. Yeah. And there's a book I can't, I've not read it. I just heard somebody uh, talking about it, um, or read a review. Um, that looked at a whole series of um, revolutions over the years and, um, you know, civil war and so on. And the pattern that they detected was that as the elites get more powerful, they, you know, they have children and they multiply and um, more people sort of on the edges want to be part of the elite. So the elite gets bigger and bigger and bigger and sucks up more and more of the available money and resources. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, the people on the other side are getting less and less. And there comes a point, a tipping point, when, mm-hmm. you know, the people on the outside have had enough, yeah, yeah. and then they rebel. Indeed. So that's where we'll leave the first part of my conversation with Ken Webster. In the second part, we'll come back to the Universal Basic Dividend, exploring how that would link to and support a circular economy including how we use resources. We talk about options for changing taxation to help people deal with a world where AI, artificial intelligence, might replace large elements of the work we get paid for now. Ken also tells us a bit about the work he's doing with Earth for All and their follow-up to the groundbreaking Club of Rome Limits to Growth report published 50 years ago. Plus, Ken reminds us of the importance of systems thinking 
and understanding complex adaptive systems, and much more. The next episode will be out next week as a bonus episode. So I want to say a massive thank you to our guest this week, Ken Webster, for being so generous with his time and for buying me lunch afterwards. It was such an honour to be able to talk with Ken and explore some of his ideas. I hope you get as much out of the conversation as I did, and don't forget to check out part two next week. You can find out more about Ken Webster, follow him on LinkedIn, and check out all the other links we mentioned in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com. The Circular Economy Podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, the company I started to help you succeed with Circular. You can find information on my talks, workshops and advice, plus Circular Economy resources at rethinkglobal.info. And you can connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn. I believe we can all help make the circular economy happen through the choices we make at work and in our everyday lives. Buying pre-used, keeping what we have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. Those choices send strong signals to companies and governments, making it clear we all want a better, circular and regenerative future. We can do better with less. We can all help spread the word too. Talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. If you're just starting out with the circular economy, why not check out our Getting Started playlist on the podcast homepage. You could also buy my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business. It takes you through the concepts and practicalities with hundreds of real examples from all around the world. We've made it easier for you to find episodes on the key circular economy strategies or for a market sector or specific countries. Check out the Interactive Podcast Index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at circulareconomypodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening to the end. And if you like what you're hearing, please hit subscribe and I'll see you next time.